Hello and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between booklist editor Donna Seaman and Tiari Jones, author of An American Marriage. This week, Donna talks with Pulitzer Prize winner and former U.S. Poet Laureate Natasha Trethewey about her powerful new memoir, Memorial Drive. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. Hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Kerry Cranston. I'm the president of the American Writers Museum. I want to welcome you to this online program. We're grateful to all of you for being here and valuing the past, present, and future of American writing. Memoir is a genre as one of is one of the first forms of American literature. Our personal stories and experiences have shaped the narrative of this country as surely as the words of any official documents. We're here tonight to talk with Natasha Trathaway um, about her book, Memorial Drive, which the New York Times called a controlled burn of chaos and intellection, and compared to Norman Baylor's The Executioner's Song. Um, Natasha Trathaway is a former U.S. Poet Laureate and the author of five collections of poetry, as well as a book of creative nonfiction. She has held appointments at Duke University, Emory University, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Yale. She is currently the Board of Trustees Professor of English at Northwestern University. In 2007, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for her collection, Native Guard. She's being interviewed tonight by Booklist Adult Books editor Donna Seaman, who, along with Natasha and others, led the development of the American Writers Museum. Donna is also the author of Identity Unknown, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists, if everyone was here in person, I would say, please help me in welcoming, welcoming our wonderful guests. But for now, I will just say welcome to you both, and thank you both for being here. Thank, thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you both for being here. And we're Hi, Natasha. Hey, thank you. All right. <clears throat> so, Carrie, I really appreciate the welcome. I miss the American Writers Museum. I will try and come as soon as I can. I'm thrilled to be here with Natasha Trethewey, and I want to start by saying congratulations, Natasha. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. So, um, as you may be aware, I've read a great deal of your poetry. So, I knew a little bit about your mother's story, just a little bit. And still, when I read Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir, excuse me, it hit me like a powerful wave. I mean, it just knocked me over. And so I would like to tell our audience that this is a book to read twice, because there is a lot to take in. And when I read it the second time, I realized even more deeply how beautifully artistic it is, how carefully structured, how meticulously written, so profoundly distilled. So I thought, Natasha, that we would begin with you reading the open section, which will give everyone a sense of the voice of this book. Three weeks after my mother is dead, I dream of her. We walk a rutted path, an oval track around which we are making our slow revolution. Side by side, so close our shoulders nearly touch, neither of us speaking, both of us in our traces. Though I know she is dead, I have a sense of contentment as if she's only gone someplace else to which I've journeyed to meet her. The world around us is dim, a backdrop of shadows out of which now a man comes. Even in the dream, I know what he has done, and yet I smile, lifting my hand and speaking a greeting as he passes. It's then that my mother turns to me, 
then that I see it, a hole the size of a quarter in the center of her forehead. From it comes a light so bright, so piercing, that I suffer the kind of momentary blindness brought on by staring at the sun, her face nothing but light ringed in darkness when she speaks. Do you know what it means to have a wound that never heals? I know I am not meant to answer, and so we walk on as before, rounding the path until we meet him again. This time, he's come to finish what he started. Holding a gun, he is aiming at her head. This time, I think I can save her. Is it enough to throw myself in the bullet's path? Shout, no. I wake to that single word, my own voice wrenching me from sleep. But it's my mother's voice that remains, her last question to me. Do you know what it means to have a wound that never heals? A refrain. Thank you. So that <clears throat> encapsulates the tragedy that you recount in this book. Um, <clears throat> namely, the um, well, you talk about your childhood and your father and your mother in the early days. And after their divorce, how you and your mother moved to Atlanta and your mother, Gwendolyn Ann Tobo, um, is hoping for a great new life with the two of you. And she meets a man and they marry and he turns out to be an abuser and ultimately her murderer. So that's the tell. And I want to ask you about, to start out just sort of formally about the writing, because clearly this is very painful. This happened when you were 19, so it's been some years. Um, those of us that have suffered family losses know that doesn't seem like a long time, that it takes that long to process things. Right. Um, so I'm wondering how poetry helped, if poetry helped you structure this memoir. Absolutely. Um, I, was, I worked on it for seven years, and... During the time that I was writing it, a few years ago, I was also working on um, my book Monument, which was new and selected poems. And I think if I hadn't been working on um, that book of poems and trying to give order and shape to a new and selected such that it became a different thing than just the sum of its parts, I might not have understood exactly the structure um, of this memoir as well. Um, that book begins with a, a, one of the new poems, Imperatives for Carrying On in the Aftermath, about contending all these years with um, the kinds of things that people say, insensitive things about domestic violence. And it ends with a poem called Articulation that uh, references the dream uh, that I just read about in the beginning of the memoir. Um, and so structurally, uh, Working on that helped me write this book, but also the way I put together collections of poems, um, thinking about a sequence and ordering. Um, I think about uh, Robert Frost's apocryphal, the apocryphal story about um, Robert Frost in the 25th poem, uh, which becomes the entire book of poems, each piece, each poem in it making up an entire whole that tells a larger narrative with that entire arc. I thought of that as I was working on Memorial Drive. That's very interesting because it, there's so much to tell. I mean, writing is always about omission. You, you have yeah. to leave things out. Right. 
Um, and <clears throat> poetry is really the essence of that kind of concentration. Um, but memoirs need to be too, because there's too much information. You have to focus it. You have to focus it and narrow it. Um, and I was really struck by the struggle you had with the years of, during this second marriage of your mother's, that you had, um, after her death, kind of closed down that part of your life. It was from 1973 to 1985, I believe. And so the, the work of excavation, of, of going back for you, was very difficult. Um, I wonder if you talk about that a little bit. Um, it was the hardest thing I had to do because I, I realized that one of the reasons this took so long is that even as I had set myself the task of writing it, I didn't want to go to the places that I had to go to to try to remember. Um, on the one hand, um, there was all of the, the, the willed amnesia that I had enacted all of these years to try to survive. And then there was the kind of forgetting that is um, what the mind does, I think, to protect us from things that are too difficult. What I found in the attempt to bury so much is that I erased so much. And so to try to recall her meant that I also had to recall uh, all the things that I, I didn't want to. Um, I read uh, a, a wonderful book. Uh, it was, it's uh, Vivian Gornick's The Situation and the Story. And that helped me a lot because, as you say, there's so much that is left out. And figuring out what the story you have to tell is also one of the hardest things. I could say this is the situation I was in, a difficult uh, childhood, a tragic loss when I was 19. That was the situation, but it took a very long time to figure out what story I had to tell. It wasn't simply that she was murdered. It was something else entirely. And it's made up of both what I remember and all, also the silences, um, the restraint that allows certain parts to shine through and others to recede into the background. I didn't yes, want that, that to really... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, you know, I, I didn't want it to be an accounting of um, the horrible violence that I think my mother... Um, must have encountered even more than I know. Um, so that's the part that kind of recedes into the background. And I think perhaps it's um, the horror of it is heightened even because it's off screen. We don't always see it. Well, and that enables us to see your mother as, as whole, as much as you can portray her as, as a woman. And also I want to say, you know, that in the early parts of the book where you describe your amazing childhood in Mississippi surrounded by your extended family, your mother's mother, your great aunt Sugar. Um, you're in the, sort of this cluster of homes um, in Mississippi and, and you're happy. Your, your father's there. You're, um, you have, you know, such an interesting family. He was such an outsider. He was um, a white guy from Nova Scotia. Um, he and your mother met in college in Kentucky. They shared a love of literature and theater, he became a poet and a professor. Um, so those stories, the early year, I, I found so moving. And as in, you know, the best of writers' memoirs, we get intimations of how and why you became a writer. Um, mm -hmm. I love the little detail you throw out that um, your mother told her mother 
celebrate your birth, not with bronze baby shoes, as people used to do, but she wanted a set of encyclopedias for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I've written about, in my first book, Domestic Work, I wrote about those encyclopedias because I started doing research um, in those encyclopedias back then. I think all of that has very much to do. I mean, I, I am a poet because of the, the, the deep existential wound of, lo- of losing my mother. But the kind of poet I am has everything to do with that early childhood, um, the way that I came to language and metaphor and image and research. Um, all of that is from, and even musicality, and um, all of that comes from there. You tell some amazing stories about the kind of stories your father would tell you, um, that he kind of steeped you in mythology and and cautionary tales. And, you know, that that metaphor became part of your consciousness really early. I think that's so interesting. Right. And I've continued to write about um, the myths that uh, sort of grounded our lives, those stories that he told me. Um, And also, you know, I think... um, the, the parts of, of, of the trauma of my childhood, um, even the, 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 the simple earliest trauma of the divorce of my parents, the move to Atlanta, early on I was already trying to, um, I think, deal with the, the, those emotions, to deal with chaos. I was very concerned about precision and symmetry and order. Um, and again, that's something um, that, that I think characterizes what I try to do, um, as a poet and to balance, uh, that order with, um, silence with restraint. Yes, that's so true of your work and so powerful. And you mentioned your first book, Domestic Work, mm-hmm. um, it, and your second work, um, The Locks of Ophelia, were based on photographs to, mm-hmm. a, to an extent. They, they were catalysts for you. And photographs play a tremendous role in Memorial Drive, too. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, writing... Uh, ekphrastically for me really comes out of uh, trying to to make photographs in my head to try to create images that I could hold on to. I talk about this in Memorial Drive that um, I began to sort of make pictures of every room in my grandmother's house because I wanted to be able to call it up, to see it, to describe it to people who would listen because I wanted to hold on to it after we left and moved to Atlanta. I think that's why I've been so drawn to image and thus to photograph. But photographs have always meant something else to me too, a way to, to read both um, what is uh, cropped from them. Um, they always you know, give us only a portion of reality. There's something always outside of the frame. And there's also what happened just before and just after. They are so deeply elegiac to me because in that moment of the photograph, the people can't possibly know what's ahead of them. And yet looking back at it, we do. And I think that's why I turn to them again and again to read what I can see in the faces that they can't have known. And then to also look for indications, Cassandra-like, 
of what was to come. Yes, beautifully put. And I, I laughed when you said um, Cassandra, because that was the name your father used for you and right. um, kind of in his stories and, and would just call you Cassandra. And that, that became another legacy that was a little hard to, to deal with. Indeed. Um, the, the idea that um, I could be prophetic, that I could know things that were going to happen and not be listened to. It, it, it felt like a, a, a burden that he, he gave to me. And I, I would think about it um, in a kind of magical thinking way that um, if I imagine things, they might happen. You know, for children, if you imagine something and it happens, it's quite possible that you begin to think that you caused it. Um, and so intellectually, I know that that's not true. And yet I remember in the weeks leading up to my mother's death, telling a friend who didn't know anything about my history, um, my mother's story, that he could come for her, that he could kill her at any time. And I've never gotten over that feeling that I said it aloud and then it happened. And I think that has to do with internalizing that idea, again, even as intellectually I know it's not true, of being a kind of Cassandra. That, that's a tremendous burden that you write about. You also, I mean, your parents both really encouraged you to write, and your father right away and your mother consistently in, in, in spite of difficult circumstances for her. Um, there was a point where... Uh, <laughs> there's a point where um, you kind of try to talk to your mother about what's going on in Atlanta where things are getting bad um, and your mother gives you a diary which is an incredible moment in a happier life it would be you know um, a very positive um, moment and a recognition that you have thoughts write down even if they're just for yourself but in the, your situation um, and this happens to other people too your private diary with its little lock um yeah was um broken into by your stepfather and instead of retreating and here's you know a testament to your artistry and your your great courage and strength you realize that if he was going to read this diary that you could address him Right. And you you empowered yourself at that moment. Yeah. In, in that moment, I, um, I, I just thought, you're right, that somehow um, I can say whatever I want. And instead of it being a private space that's locked shut only for me to see, I have now an audience. It is meant to be read and I'm going to write like it's meant to be read. And it, instead of making me um, censor myself, it made me say everything that I needed to say to him all those years that I couldn't. Um, I even, you know, tried out language I wasn't allowed to say in the house um, <laughs> to to name him to himself in it. Um, 
And he never said anything about it. And I knew that he wouldn't somehow, that I knew he wouldn't admit it. And so I could go on like that, having this conversation with him that was not spoken, but clearly articulated. That's such a profound recognition on your part that he was, that he had trapped himself. Mm -hmm. He couldn't say anything because he's not supposed to be doing this. terrible violation he committed um but that also he probably couldn't help but read it and so that that was a secret battle going on um and incredible resiliency of, of for you and um it seems to have i mean that discipline too i mean you talk about the silence mm-hmm. you tried to talk about things and people didn't listen i mean this is young people's experience over and over again it's women's experience over and over again Mm -hmm. um your teacher doesn't help a a woman you very much admired um so you you realize that you're going to have to deal with this in whatever form you can create for yourself right and it's very powerful um before we go too much further i want to back up a little the title of your book is memorial drive um I wonder if you could describe that landscape for us because it's a very particular view of the self and um, it's become sort of newly urgent to talk about. So I wonder if you would give us that larger context. I want to say that in all your work, you both give, you're incredibly generous in your personal um, revelations. They're always in a historical context. And this goes back to your early thrill in the encyclopedias and you're always curious about the history about fact about other sources so you know this doesn't happen in a void and there's a context that you're very aware of and uh, because you use it it's such a perfect title in so many ways but it's also a really significant place for us all to think about right um you know uh so memorial drive is the road that leads from downtown atlanta to the base of Stone Mountain. And Stone Mountain is the, the mountain upon which the, the nation's largest monument to the Confederacy is carved. You know, it's sort of a southern Mount Rushmore with uh, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis right up there, uh, huge riding on horseback, sort of looming over everything because it's, it's a, it's a, you know, made out of stone. And so it's, it's, you know, there's a few trees on it, but it's really bald. And, um, you know, the, the way that it rises there um, and looms over everything, um, it, it, it was started um, early in the 20th century. And strangely enough, you know, even after the civil rights movement, um, they didn't complete it until 1972, which is the year that my mother and I moved to Atlanta. And this thing that had been going on since, you know, birth of a nation, you know, uh, they didn't complete until uh, 1972, even after all the advancements in the civil rights movement, they still needed to construct this monument to send a message to black people about their second class citizenship, which is, of course, part of the conversation that we're having right now. Um, But it also, for me, suggests the metaphor that I was meant to make sense of, you know, going back to, you know, my father wanting me to have a, a, a 
a, a proper education and proper figurative values, as in Robert Frost's notion of a proper poetical education in the metaphor. Because without it, you're not safe in science, you're not safe in history. And this was the history that I would not have been safe in had I not been able to understand the the relationship of that monument to the individual death of my mother at its base. There it is telling me that this is what is important. This is what is remembered here. And the small thing is not. And so I wanted to write something that could stand up as big as that monument. And, and you have, Julie, very powerful. And it also makes us think very carefully about what happened to your mother um, in the larger context. Um, your first two books we started talking about, which are revisited in Monuments, your magnificent new and selected collection, which I hope all our audience is reading or will read, um, focuses on the lives of black women uh, in America and how, how taken for granted, how overlooked, how, you know, as you were saying earlier, second-class citizens they were treated. And, you know, this falls into the whole procedure that happens with your mother and her attempts to protect herself to work within the system. Um, you know, your mother was brilliantly articulate. She was a social worker, well-educated, a professional, did all the right things. Um, and the system failed her ultimately. Um, and there's, there's such a, there's so many powerful facets of this book. And not only do we have your language, you know, burned down to its powerful essence, but um, and I, I ask you to tell the story of how you acquired these, but we also have documents in here, including one in your, in your mother's voice, something she wrote, and also phone transcripts. This is one of those amazing events, I think, that happens um, when you're on the right path. Um, so if you could please tell us a story about how you found, how you, these came into your possession, these documents. Yeah, um, it was... Pure serendipity. Um, I was. Uh, I had moved back to Atlanta to take a job there, and um, my husband and I were walking downtown Decatur. Um, and mind you, I, I guess I have to admit that somehow, you know, even though I said I'd never go back to Atlanta, I went back to Atlanta, even though I wanted to avoid as much as I could about my past. I bought a house very close to the courthouse where the trials were held um, and not far from the place she died. And so by being in that proximity, it was as if I was preparing myself for the possibility. You know, Louis Pasteur said that chance favors the prepared mind. And so on this day, we're walking um, and we we encounter a man um, who comes up to us in a restaurant who recognizes me. Um, I don't know him, but he recognizes me. And it turns out he was, uh, at that point, an assistant district attorney, but had been the first police officer on the scene the morning my mother was killed. And he told me, it had been 20 years then since her death, and he told me that the records are purged after 20 years and that they were getting ready to be purged, and he got them for me. Um, and handed over everything from, you know, the the various statements, you know, the, from the first time he tried to kill her, witness statements, 
um, her autopsy um, transcripts of the phone conversations that she had with him two days leading up to her death where she was trying to get evidence so that they would issue an arrest warrant for him. And I think most importantly, the contents of her briefcase they found that morning in which uh, she'd left a yellow legal pad on which she was writing her own story about this. It seemed like perhaps a speech she was writing to support uh, the work of a domestic violence shelter because it began talking about admiring the work that they'd done. When you read it, you get the sense that she thought she'd escaped. It's, it's very powerful. And, and to hear her voice makes the story all the more resonant, um, adds a whole other dimension. Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, it, it, it was a hard decision to include those things, but it also, I think, was really the only choice I could make. I mean, I, um, I could tell you, you know, how brilliant and resilient and calm and smart and patient, all those things that she was, but I think you needed to see it in her own words, to hear her voice come through. You hear her voice when she was in control of the narrative, and then to hear her trying to control her ex-husband in those transcripts, which are incredible studies in mental illness and an attempt to, to survive. I've really not read anything like that before. I mean, she has to do this balancing act of, you know, she's, she, she has to get evidence. She has to get evidence for the police, for the judge that he is making terroristic threats so that they will do something to save her. Um, but she also is firm in her resolve that she is not going back to him. She's not going to say things like that to appease him in any way. She is standing her ground and saying, no, but you should get help for yourself. Like she's, it's even an act of kindness. Oh, definitely. Yes, all the traits you were naming, I mean, her patience is there, her love, her, her honesty. They're, they're absolutely astonishing to read. Um, and I think bringing them in there, it, it opens up, I mean, it's, you know, we consistently realize things about the, the intimacy of, of violence and suffering and the social um, setting for it. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's hard to feel sympathy for him, but part of his story involves racism, of course, and the Vietnam War and that whole setting in Atlanta where you have the Confederacy looming over you all the time. So it's, it tells us a lot. There's a lot of information in those conversations. I mean, the, the, the thing I think about, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in restorative justice. And I think for him, it means, well, I wanted also readers to see him for exactly how he was presenting himself. 
But restorative justice, I think, is about remembering, as you know, as you say, um, that there are all these other forces at work that were perhaps crushing his soul, disfiguring it, you know? I had to remember, as I wrote about him, that he was a child once. Or whatever happened to so disfigure him that he would do this. That just restores to him, I think, his full humanity, flawed as it is. a whole, a very different world that your book is entering than what we would have imagined six months ago. Right. Um, and I think it will be read with even more receptivity and, um, and deep thoughts about memory, about memorializing, um, you know, about the South and what we do with um, monuments to treason and racism and white supremacy. <laughs> Um, absolutely. <laughs> so, I'm sure you've been thinking about these things a lot and, and thinking about the, the, the world your book is, is entering now. Um, any, any thoughts you want to share about that? Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, is, it is both a time of so much loss and so much grief, a time for a, a real need to remember and memorialize the lives that we are constantly losing. Um, it is also, I think, a time to be um, conscious about what might be going on that we don't see. Just as there were things in my household that people couldn't see, I think we're in a moment where there are perhaps so many people who, because of the need to shelter in place, are living with their abusers and not able to get the kind of help that they might need, the kind of help that my mother tried to get. I think we're also um, having real a real reckoning over what we remember and what stories we tell ourselves about a nation as a nation. I think we'll be contending with how we remember this moment for a long time, and we're being taught, I think how to look at it by looking at all of those Confederate monuments, you know, um, to be aware now for so many people who weren't aware of the messages that they've been sending for, you know, over a century now. Um, and what it means, I keep, I keep saying this, you know, you, you mentioned treason. I mean, we had nearly 200,000 African-American soldiers fight in the civil war for the union fight to preserve the union for their fight for their own freedom. They fought to move this country closer to its own founding ideals. They won the war. And yet there's only a handful of monuments in the North and South to them. Imagine if instead of all those Confederate monuments all over the South, there were monuments to the actual winners of that war, the nearly 200,000 African-American soldiers who fought in it. We would understand ourselves very differently as a nation. And you wouldn't have people who had no idea that blacks fought in the Civil War. I've encountered so many people who have no idea that blacks have fought for their own freedom in this country. Right. And that was your collection, Native Guard, where you tell the story of a battalion of that. Mm-hmm. 
I'm thinking too of a passage in um, Memorial Drive that really that both made me laugh and also feel pain. You describe your enthrallment really to Ulysses S. Grant and to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you memorized <laughs> the Gettysburg Address. Yes. yes. And there's a scene you recount where you go into a Civil War cemetery. And you sort of speak speak to some of these headstones. Yes, I start, you know, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. <laughs> Take that, you Confederate soldier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a profound revelation. I mean, what, you were like 12 or something? I don't know. Yeah, it sounds like I was a weird little kid, maybe. <laughs> I think this is very smart and and recognizing there the, the the power of, of of words. I mean that that speech, you know, that call for justice and, and memorializing and accounting. I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean it's it, it 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 was so beautiful for for its sentiment, for what it was saying, but also how it's written. Yeah. And then when you realize, as short as it is, that that was just so out of character for the day when people would get up there and talk for you know over an hour in a speech. And this is a short little thing that could memorialize those lives lost at Gettysburg. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, those those moments in this book are just um, just endlessly powerful and fascinating and resonant, and you know that the way you grow through this as as a writer and a person is is very moving and, and enriches your mother's portrait uh, deeply. Yeah. Um, I guess I just wanted to um, mention, kind of go back a little bit to the the um, the man that got you the documents, and just say that I was very struck by how haunted he seemed. Um, and, and, you know, just to sort of talk about how difficult it is for everyone on the front lines. I mean, we see this now with essential workers and, and with healthcare workers and, you know, what it really means to face tragedy and death as, as part of your job. And you know, we see so many horrible policemen and, and so much brutality and, and racism and violence. And I was struck by this man that, that, that seemed to have really been marked by your mother's death. And, it broke, it broke his heart. Um, and, you know, his wife said to me as he hung his head and wept that a, d- a day didn't go by that he didn't think about my mother. So, yeah, just imagine all of these frontline workers right now who are um, tending to patients, losing patients, um, learning who they are, and then seeing them die. It will haunt so many of us for the rest of our lives, this moment. It, it definitely will. And yet, at the end, in conjunction with that, we see this amazing flowering of recognition of all that we've been talking about today. You know, recognition yeah. of Black Lives Matter, of, of the lies we've been told and how we have to stop accepting or ignoring them. You know, that, that idea yeah. that it's... You know, We're bending toward justice. <laughs> I absolutely think so. I think so too, and I, I do think that all of your work uh, will help us, will articulate us, and light a path for us. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. 
Tune in next week for a conversation with screenwriter and comics writer J. Michael Straczynski about his recent memoir, Becoming Superman. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.